If you would, please take out your Bibles and join me in turning to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, where we finish up chapter 15 uh, this morning. As we turn to God's word, let's once again turn to him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for not leaving us alone, but you've given us your word and your spirit to help us as we who are sojourners on this earth who don't have a home here, but are looking forward to that city that you have built. Father, may your word and spirit have their way with us. Oh, Father, through your word, would you exalt yourself in the hearts and lives of your people today? To your everlasting praise and to our everlasting good, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you respond when things don't go the way you planned? I mean, think of the last time something didn't go the way you had planned. How did you respond? What was your immediate response? Reaction, your immediate response. Well, I think there's two main responses when, when things don't go the way we planned. Uh, one response is either to drill down, to become more adamant, or on the other extreme, you just give up. But I think most of us land somewhere in between drilling down and giving up. It's a combination of the two responses when things don't go the way we planned. Well, our text in Acts today shows an incident when things didn't go the way they were planned. The way they were planned by man. However, in the context of Acts, the entire New Testament, all of the scriptures, they went exactly according to the plan of God. I mean, how could that not be the case as we've been seeing For it is God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Children, this is where all things really means all things. We get in trouble sometimes when we we say always or never or none or all. But this is all things according to the counsel of his will. And we read in Proverbs, the heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And since there are so many things in my life, in your life, in all of our lives that don't go according to plan, that is according to our plan, I think this portion of God's word will bring us great comfort, great assurance. Where are we in Acts We're in the second half of Acts. We're after the the significant meeting of the church that we spent the last two weeks looking at. It's the Jerusalem Council. It's Paul's first missionary journey has ended and his second missionary journey is about to begin. Now, why is this incident? Why are verses 36 through 41 of chapter 15 included in Acts? Well, first of all, it's because it happened. Uh, Acts is Luke's select record of all that Jesus continued to do and teach now through the ministry of his Holy Spirit 
in his church. And it's a select record, but God wanted this to be in here. And Luke, being driven by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, included this incident. Secondly, it provides um, the explanation for how Paul's second missionary journey got started. It gives us some historical background. And thirdly, it, it serves, I believe, to demonstrate that not only is the Bible absolutely true in what it teaches, but it also is utterly realistic in what it portrays. It reflects life as it really is. That's why the scriptures, unlike, say, the Quran, the scriptures as God's truth capture the reality of life in a sinful and fallen world. The Savior gets denied. The Savior is betrayed. Here is a disagreement, a surprising disagreement among men who were, in one case, soul brothers. They'd been through so much, and yet we're going to see it unfold in Scripture. Luke does not attempt to hide this incident, but as we will see, he certainly does not provide the details that we may want. Now, in what various ways has this incident been viewed? Um, I, I put in the preparing for worship email that went out earlier, I guess Friday, uh, a number of titles to this section have come up. Uh, titles are kind of like sound bites. Uh, they're short things that you can remember the things by. A traumatic argument, separation, Paul and Barnabas split up, Christians in conflict, Direction from conflict and failure. Now I want you to notice our title. Not an example, but an assurance. One commentator, Dennis Johnson, sums it up well. That God uses sinful servants never excuses our sin, but it always glorifies his grace. Now I'm going to read our passage and then we'll get going. Beginning in verse 36 of chapter 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Now with this chosen title in mind, and this duplex theme of our sin and God's grace, we're going to explore our text under two headings. First, man is still sinful. Thus, this is not an example to follow. And second, God is still sovereign. Thus, it's an, assur it's an assurance in which to rest. I want to emphasize the word still. Man is still sinful and God is still sovereign. Why? Why is that word important? 
I think it's because we so easily forget that and need to be reminded. In the words of John Newton, who said that a Christian, and he was speaking of himself, but I think it's for every Christian, is, until glorification, a miserable sinner, and that Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. So our two sections are man is still sinful and God is still sovereign. Let's look at man being sinful and therefore not an example to follow. Well, it's first of all important to notice the pastoral concern for the converts. Paul rightly wants to go back to the churches, to the cities that he and others ministered to. He wants to revisit them, see how they're doing. It's, Paul is not concerned with converts per se. He's concerned with people coming to faith in Christ and growing in faith in Christ, just like he himself. He, he was converted on the road to Damascus. He came to Jesus, or Jesus came to him. He was converted. He was a new man. But you remember, he went away for a number of years. He's going to grow in the grace. Others come alongside him and help him mature. He recognizes that that's absolutely essential. It's not just conversion evangelism. It's discipleship evangelism. Paul and Barnabas, remember, are a team. Barnabas is a great encourager. He's a relational. That's his gifting, relationships. And Barnabas, remember, introduces Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem in chapter 9. He invites him to teach in Antioch in chapter 11. Paul and Barnabas are tight. They are brothers in the faith. Sure, they're going to have disagreements here and there like all people do. But separation? Go their separate ways? I think they both agreed to revisit, to go back, to encourage and strengthen the churches. But... As we will see, they ended up going their separate ways. In 39, we read, and there arose a sharp disagreement, a sharp disagreement. It's not a mild gentleman's disagreement, but the the original language conveys an intensity, a passion about a disagreement. There's There's aspects of anger, irritation, exasperation when Luke reports this rupture. Luke states the fact of what happened, but he leaves the interpretation to the reader. The proposal, of course, is to take Mark. Okay, it's decision time. Who's for it? Who's against it? Who? The yeas and the nays. Well, obviously, Barnabas was for this. He suggested it. He knew that Mark had departed. He knew that Mark went back to Jerusalem. He knew that he didn't continue on the missionary journey. You read this language, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them and had not gone with them to the work. Barnabas, the encourager. Barnabas, the relational man, is for it. He's willing to take the risk again. Will Mark depart again? Maybe. They're cousins, Paul and Bar- excuse me, Barnabas and Mark. They, there may be some familial connection there, but most likely it's Barnabas just is willing to take the risk. But Paul was against it. Mark had defected and deserted, and you can go back to Acts 13, 13 to see that. 
In view of Paul, Mark can't be trusted. This is a sharp disagreement, but I think it's important to understand that it's not a dispute over doctrine. Paul and Barnabas are aligned with the gospel. It's not a question of the the basics of the gospel. It's, It's kind of the man versus the mission or the interest of the individual versus the work of the whole. Now think about it. Think about the life and ministry of Jesus. Did he not speak of the shepherd doing what? Leaving the 99 and going after the one? Clearly, the interest of the individual was first and foremost. But did Jesus not also let the one go? The rich young ruler walked away sad. Jesus didn't pursue him. Jesus turned around and continuing to minister to his disciples. So even in the life of Jesus, his ministry, you see sometimes it's the interest of the individual and sometimes it's the the work of the whole. And not only is it not a dispute over doctrine, it's it's a difference of opinion. It's the sympathetic character of Barnabas who has a shepherd's heart. It's also Paul who has a shepherd's heart, but he's focused on the mission. Who was right? Who was right? Was Paul right? Was Barnabas right? Guess what? The Bible does not give us an answer. Nothing in the text suggests that Paul was the one who was right and Barnabas wrong or Barnabas was right and Paul was wrong. God knows who was right and who was wrong. But God is pleased here not to tell us. It's got to be one of the secret things that belongs to God and that he has been pleased not to reveal to us. So it's not a matter of doctrine. It's a matter of opinion. I think we're all going to be faced with a major choice, a decision that has to be made. I'm not thinking about in the next few days. I'm thinking about a month from now. Apple pie or pumpkin pie? Who's right? Who's wrong? Truly, it's a matter of opinion and taste. So at the end of the day, it looks like Paul and Barnabas choose to do something that until recently, until the past few years, I would have to say, I didn't understand, and I certainly, at the time, didn't really support it. Paul and Barnabas agree to disagree. It's like that expression, it is what it is. They agree to disagree. That this team of Paul and Barnabas should have broken up because of this conflict conflict is absolutely sad. Wherever the responsibility for the breakdown was located... This is a breach between brothers, and it's inexcusable. The example of God's overriding providence may not be used as an excuse for Christian quarreling. This incident does not excuse sin nor give us the go-ahead for the grace of God to be abused. And Paul speaks of that directly in Romans, doesn't he? Okay, so if, if God's grace increases 
when our sin increases, should we just sin all the more? What's Paul's response? By no means. You died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? But you know, this is sinful, right? It's sinful in the sense that there's supposed to be unity, right? Jesus prays for, for unity. But somehow that unity was not achieved. It was, in fact, breached. It's not an excuse. We don't look at this in his, in his example and say, okay, time to split up, time to go our separate ways. But what does it tell us? What does it tell us about men like Paul who says, hey, I'm the chief of sinners? Interesting. The least of the apostles, the least of the saints, right? What does it say about Paul who says, the good I want to do, I don't do? What does it say? It says this, all Christians walk with a limp. All Christians here on earth walk with a limp. We all rely not on ourselves, not on our abilities. We rely on the grace of God. And so here we see the sad separation came about because the perfect unity of believers had not yet been achieved. It was a work in progress then, and it remains a work in progress now. But that's not all that we see in our text. We also see that God is still sovereign. And because of that, this is an assurance in which to rest. God's sovereignty is seen first in that two missionary expeditions came from one. You see, the result of this separation, the result of they separated from each other is two missionary expeditions rather than one. It's two, as it were, for the price of one. It's buy one, get one. It's Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus and Paul and Silas go north into the Gentile churches of Syria and Sicilia. Cilicia. And what are they going to do there? What are Paul and Barnabas going to do? Well, they're going to deliver the letter. Remember the letter that we talked about last week? They're going to deliver the letter and they're going to strengthen the churches in both their faith and their practice. So God's sovereignty is seen, first of all, in that there's going to be two missionary expeditions heading out from this incident. But secondly, God's sovereignty is seen in that there was eventual reconciliation um, you got to keep reading the Bible you got to get to the end you can't give up I can't tell you how many people can take a verse out of the Bible a paragraph out of the Bible and go off the rails because and every heresy out there can be supported so to speak by scripture it's when you extract a verse here and there from its context immediate and the whole context of the bible so there's eventual reconciliation barnabas interestingly disappears you don't hear from barnabas again but mark doesn't you see paul writes the church in Colossae, and he says hey welcome mark welcome him he says in second timothy 4 that we heard read earlier Paul's toward the end, and when you're on death's door, when you know you don't have much time left, you don't want casual acquaintances with you, do you? You want the people who are with you and for you, 
You want the encourager. You want the one who's pointed you to Christ. You want your close friend. And who does he want? He tells Timothy to get Mark. Bring him here. Why? He's useful for my ministry. There's reconciliation. Isn't that amazing? Paul didn't trust Mark. Paul thought Mark was going to defect and depart. Paul was proved wrong. Mark became a a tremendous minister of the gospel. And Paul recognized that. And he preserved that for us to know. He speaks in Philemon of Mark being a fellow worker. How encouraging is that? You got to keep reading to the end. Don't stop. And so my friends, there is great comfort and assurance in the sovereign providence of God. A few weeks ago, I believe it was here, I, I, I shared that a friend of mine often reminds me of two things. God loves me and God's got this. God loves me and God's got this. I can't tell you how that quickly, almost immediately, takes my eyes off of myself, takes my eyes off of my circumstances and puts them on Jesus. Most of you are familiar with Jerry Bridges. In trusting God, even when life hurts, he writes this. No plan of God can be thwarted. When he acts, no one can reverse it. No one can hold back his hand or bring him to account for his actions. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and works out every event to bring about the accomplishment of his will. Bridges goes on to say this, such a bare, unqualified statement of the sovereignty of God would terrify us if that's all we knew about God. But God is not only sovereign, he is perfect in love and he is infinite in wisdom. Think about that, my friends. God who is absolutely sovereign, who rules the kings and the presidents and the prime ministers and the parliaments and the city councils and the mayors, they're not sovereign. God is the one true king. And yet that one true king, is he not a God of love? Is he not a God of wisdom? In Jesus, do, not, do we not see the love of God? Do we not see the wisdom of God? It's a great comfort and assurance that the sovereign God advances his kingdom, how? Through his flawed servants. It's all he's got to work with. Churches are built and established and strengthened and people come to faith and grow in faith are discipled by flawed people. Isn't that encouraging? Conflict is a part of life here and now, but as long as God reigns and rules, and he does from heaven, 
We can expect good to come from the flawed actions of forgiven, yet still sinful man. And so we've seen that not only is man still sinful, and therefore this is not a good example for us to follow, but we've also seen that God is still sovereign overall. And this, my friends, is an assurance in which we can and should rest. I want to finish with three questions. And the answers may come quickly to you or they may take some time. First, do you believe what we've been reading? Do you believe it? Remember from last week, God is the author of this letter from Genesis to Revelation to you. Do you have the appetite for God's word like like someone has when their lover writes them a letter? Do you devour it? Do you find, as it were, life in the words? Do you believe it? My friends, if if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not studying it, if you're not meditating on it, if you're not memorizing it, do you believe it? That's the first question to ask. And, And second... Do you believe what we've been singing today? Do you believe what we've been singing? Do you believe these words? O Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of man. No powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan. All chance and change transcending, supreme in time and space. You hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. I mean, do you believe these words? Oh, Father, you are sovereign. We see you dimly now, but soon before your triumph, earth's every knee shall bow. With this glad hope before us, our faith springs up anew, our sovereign Lord and Savior. We trust and worship you. Do you believe that whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth? I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road, he holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. Do you believe it? You sang it. We're going to sing it again someday. Do you believe it? Indeed, So often, as we see in our text and we see in our lives, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. And the third and final question is this. Do you believe the God you know and love? Maybe the better question to ask is, do you believe the God who knows you and loves you? I mean, can you echo the words of Paul? You remember the one here, Paul? The one who who went on to say that he had been crucified with Christ. Can you say that? I have been crucified with Christ. And that you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. Can you say that? 
Can you say that the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God, and get this, who loved you and gave himself for you? That's Paul. That's the one who went his separate ways from Barnabas. Paul wasn't clinging to getting the relationship right with Barnabas for his security. He was clinging to God's love for him in Christ. And that's us as well. May we all rest in the good news that even though we make plans, God's purpose prevails. Indeed, when it comes to our salvation, my salvation and your salvation, none of us could have planned it. But God could have and God did. And his plan to rescue us from sin and death and even from ourselves is like no other. Who would have come up with the plan? Who would have come up with the plan? But because it's God's plan and not ours, he and he alone gets the glory for our rescue. And we get his grace now and forever. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving and ensuring that this incident in the life of your people, your church, would be preserved for us to read now. We thank you, Father, for how it reminds us that man is still sinful. And thus, this is not an example for us to follow, but oh, it also reminds us that you, Father, are still sovereign. And how assuring is that? Oh, Father, may we not use this to excuse our sin, to, to willingly, purposefully depart from your revealed will. But, oh, Father, may we not be paralyzed into inaction by fear. But would you energize us through your spirit to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, our God. Amen.